So hear the word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumours, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumours and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is God's word. Well, let's um, come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Father, that uh, everything that was written in the past was written uh, to teach us and that it was written to uh, encourage us, to enable us to endure through all of uh, life's uh, circumstances so that we might live for your glory. So we pray, Lord, that your spirit would uh, teach us and enlighten our minds to see the wonderful things here that we would follow you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> yeah, so this section in 1 Samuel, uh, this is a section that focuses on the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant, as it's sometimes called. And uh, the Ark, if you weren't here last week, we had a, um, you know, an explanation of what the Ark is. Uh, it was a golden box about this big, a uh, gold-covered box, by the way, and uh, it was made at the time of Moses, and the, the box, it was symbolic of God's presence with his people. Okay, it, if, the Israel, if the Israelites ever saw it, it would point them to the fact that God was with them. Uh, the ark itself looked like a footstool that belonged to a king's throne. And so it communicated very clearly to the people that God is among them as their king. 
Okay, that he rules them not from this box, but from heaven. Uh, it's like you know, God's in heaven and his feet are on the box. It's sort of the way it communicated um, God's presence among them. But at the end of chapter 4 in 1 Samuel, the people lost the ark. They lost the ark of God. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Imagine the, the distress and turmoil, what this communicated to them. Uh, you see, they, they had been in, uh, at war with the Philistines. Uh, they'd lost the first battle. And so they thought, what are we going to do? Uh, I know, let's bring the ark of God to, to the battlefield. That way, God will have to make us win because there's no way he'd want to be humiliated and, and let his ark get captured. So they thought uh, they thought they could control God, get him to do their will. Uh, God had other ideas. He let the people be defeated. He even let the ark be captured. The Philistines took it away. And so chapter 4, it actually ended with um, a child being born who was named Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? And the explanation was, God's glory had departed. With the capturing of the ark, it looked like God had left Israel. He'd given up on them. It looked like he was defeated by the Philistines. And so you could imagine the Israelites must have been thinking, what now? <laughs> what do we do now? What does this say about God? I mean, wasn't he, isn't he the sovereign king of the, the earth? How come he's captured? What does this say about him? I mean, is he really defeated? And uh, do you know sometimes we can actually feel that way? Wondering about what is God up to in the world? You know, in our little neck of the woods, uh, in living in Australia, in a Western country, where for the last 200 years there's been this push to, to squeeze God out of society. And in the last few decades, it really feels like that push has well and truly succeeded um, because you know, we're a secular society now. Uh, God's not welcome in any aspect of our society, it seems. He's certainly not welcome in education. He has no place in politics. He's not even allowed in ethics. You know, we're a secular society. And so that means that for many today, people think that if God exists, he's only in the imaginations of those who are still on the wrong side of history, who haven't caught up uh, with where we're at today. And every year, well, lately, uh, each, each year there's been a new law passed and that new law has put the squeeze on Christians. Okay, it's made it harder to, to go about uh, you know, church life. Uh, there are new laws that have certain restrictions on what we can and can't do. And uh, we're starting to feel the squeeze. And we can start to ask the question, hang on, what's going on? What's, is God defeated? Is he being pushed out? Uh, are his glory days over? You know, just exactly what the Israelites are thinking. Where is the glory? Has he been defeated? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 5 answers those questions. Okay, are God's glory days over? Well, let's hear the answer from 1 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, the, the passage here, it answers it in three ways, three points. Uh, the first one we see in verses 1 to 5, the fact of God's supremacy. God's supremacy. 
Okay, so verses 1 to 5, here we see that this is why the Israel, while the Israelites, they're all in despair. They're feeling like all is lost. So we leave them behind for now and we go over to Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the main um, Philistine cities in that day. And uh, the, the Philistines, they're all feeling very um, upbeat because they've just won a battle. They've captured the Israelites' most prized possession, the ark. And uh, verse 2 says that they took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So who is this Dagon? Uh, Dagon was their god, uh, their, their idol. Uh, you see, the Philistines, they, they believed in a whole pantheon of gods. Okay, they believed that there was a god who controlled each aspect of life. So there was a God who controlled the weather, a God who controlled uh, crops growing, uh, a God who controlled fertility. Uh, they, they believed that there were certain gods who, who occupied territories. And they had all of these gods, but it seems like their main one, the big, you know, the big one, uh, was Dagon. And so they take the Ark of the Lord, put it into Dagon's temple, and notice how they set it up next to Dagon. Dagon statue and the reason they did that it's because the Philistines actually believed in the God of Israel you know they, they had all, all these gods and so you know the God of Israel here's another one by putting him in the temple they weren't rejecting him they were saying that his power is less than Dagon's but but whatever power he still has they're wanting him to now use that for Dagon so it's almost like they've been adopted the God of Israel, but they want to have him there serving uh, this um, Dagon. Anyway, they wake up the next morning and um, get a very big surprise because uh, they go into the temple and they find here that Dagon had fallen uh, face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And uh, I don't know what they made of that. Uh, maybe someone was saying, who left the door open? You know, a gust of wind must have blown him over. Or, hey, oh, maybe, was there an earthquake? Yeah, I think I felt something in the night. Um, or, you know, teenagers these days up to mischief again. And so, um, you know, they, they look. Now, it is interesting because Dagon, he's in this posture of worship before the Ark of the Lord. That's a bit weird. Anyway, verse 3, end of verse 3, it says, They took him and put him back in his place. And, uh, you know, <laughs> can you kind of imagine that? You know, hey, let, let me help you up, God. Let me um, put you back. There you go. You're okay now. Good. Uh, you know, there's something wrong when you've got to pick your God up off the floor. Uh, anyway, the next day it's far worse because uh, this time not only has he fallen down again in that posture of worship, but this time his head and his hands are literally cut off, lying on the floor. And uh, what's that about? Well, heads and hands being cut off that is actually a, uh, a typical way of demonstrating military defeat. Okay, uh, heads and hands, chop. Uh, if you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll see all the time heads and hands being removed. Uh, it, was, it was the way they did it back then to, to show publicly a military defeat. So think of David. You all know this story. David kills Goliath with a stone. Goliath drops dead. Okay? 
battle won. But what does David do? He goes and gets out Goliath's sword and cuts the guy's head off. Why does he do that? It's this public demonstration. Victory has been won. And so that's what's going on here with Dagon. Here's, this is a, a military victory. See, the Philistines had thought that they had won the military campaign. They're celebrating. They've, they've put the ark in, in the Dagon's trophy case. And yet they've celebrated too soon because the real victory actually goes to the Lord. So you have Dagon having no hands, that means he has no power. His power is gone. To have no head means he has no life. And so this is God's way of showing the Philistines that your God, he's a nothing. He's nothing. And so what we see here, this is communicating to us the supremacy of God. That God is supreme. He is above all. And uh, God will not be considered one among many. That's the point he's making to the Philistines. I mean, if God just kept knocking Dagon off, the Philistines might have concluded, okay, maybe he's bigger and tougher than we thought. Maybe he's the toughest God, you know, the biggest one. So we can swap him and Dagon around. Um, but the fact that God cut off Dagon's head and hands, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm the only God. I'm the only true and living God. And do you know, that is the most basic fact about God's revelation of himself in the Bible. The most basic fact is this. There is only one God. Okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is only one. There is one who has created everything. Only one God. And uh, that's why we can, you know, we can never go along with the idea that all religions are valid. Uh, that's not true. Because there's only one true and living God. Uh, there's only one God who created all things. There's only one God who has revealed himself as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All other gods are idols. That's the basic fact of the Bible. All other gods are idols. In fact, you know, this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 5, this is one of those classic passages that show us that idolatry is not only wrong, but it shows us that idolatry is foolish. Idolatry is stupid. Because, you know, we're supposed to laugh when we see the Philistines scrambling around trying to pick up the pieces of their broken God. It's foolish. Uh, but really what we're meant to see is actually that the joke is also on us. Because idolatry... Okay, when you think about idolatry, don't think it's just something that happened way back there in the past. Don't think of it as an Old Testament problem. Don't think of idolatry as something that's confined to having a weird statue that can sometimes topple over. Do you know, idolatry, it's actually a problem of the human heart. Idolatry is something that every single person experiences. Every person does. Uh, because... When God created humanity, he created us as worshippers. He created us to love and to worship him. 
But because of sin, because the world is fallen, what happens is that we now have this inbuilt resistance to worshipping the true and living God. But that doesn't mean we stop being worshippers, because that's what we are. We're worshippers. And so what do we do? Rather than worshipping God, we worship other things. Anything other than God. That's the bent of the human heart. And that means that every single person has something, something in our lives that tends to take God's place. Something that we love and adore more than God. Something that we look to as the thing that gives us meaning in life. The thing that drives us, the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning. That, that thing that we think, that's what my life is about. That's what I'm seeking after. And uh, the list of what those things could be is endless. I'll just give you some examples of the main ones. Uh, one of them, of course, would be uh, money. Uh, that's um, the god of uh, Western society. Money, pleasure, comfort, uh, sex. Uh, pleasure, I said, um, could be your job, your sporting team. You know, your sport. That's Melbourne. Melbourne worships sport. Uh, it could be your hobby. It could be comfortable retirement. But that's the thing that gives you uh, the meaning of your life. <clears throat> now, all of these things are good in their rightful place, but what, what we see in the human heart, our hearts actually look very similar to um, Dagon's temple. Because, you know, in the temple you've got Dagon's at the center, and off to the side is the Ark of the Lord. And that, that actually is a good picture of um, what our hearts uh, very easily fall into where we, we, you know, we have God, we, we want to, to live for God, yet he tends to be off to the side, in second place, behind the real drive of our life, which is one of these other things. And uh, whenever, whenever we have something in our lives that, that is actually more important to us than the Lord, then what is happening in that moment is idolatry. And what this passage is telling us is that before God, all other gods, all other idols must topple. They must be broken down. Uh, God will not allow any rival because he alone is God. And uh, if we want to be in a relationship with God, then he will topple our idols. And that will be a awful experience okay if we don't repent of idolatry god will topple those idols and that hurts uh, that devastates it's never an easy experience when god takes away something in our lives that we that we've put before him but he has to do that for us to realize that these things are nothing that these are not god that he alone is god that he alone can truly satisfy he has to do that. Uh, there's a hymn that talks about this. It's a hymn about having a closer walk with God. And one of the verses says, The dearest idol that I have known, whatever that idol may be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Okay, that's, that's the first thing. God's supremacy. The fact of God's supremacy. Uh, but the second thing we see in this passage, though, is we see the weight of God's glory. 
the weight of God's glory. And that's in verses 6 to 12. Because here we see that God's presence, when God's presence is among the Philistines, not only does that cause trouble for their idol, but it causes trouble for them as well. So have a look at verse 6. It says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumours, both Ashdod and its territory. So notice the Philistines, what are they experiencing? The hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord. All the way through this passage, there's references to God's hand working among them. And uh, that contrasts very nicely to um, Dagon's hands, which are lying cut off on the floor of the temple. Uh, But God's hands aren't cut off. They're not powerless. God is there working in his hand. It says his hand is heavy against the people of Ashdod. And that's that word heavy. See, all through these chapters in um, 1 Samuel, there's this play on words with the word heavy. Because the word heavy, it's very similar to the word glory. Remember in the last chapter, um, God's glory had departed. What is God's glory? God's glory is his heaviness, uh, the weightiness of God, that God is not someone that you can take lightly. That's what we mean when we talk about God's glory. It's the, you know, the, the greatness of God, the, the bigness, um, if that's a word, the bigness of God. Uh, you, you can't dismiss God because of the weight of his glory. And we see here that the people of Ashdod, uh, they were certainly feeling the weight of God's glory. And uh, for them, uh, it came in the form of God's heavy hand of judgment. Uh, God judged them. He terrified them. He afflicted them with tumors. In fact, in verse 7, notice the way they connect the dots. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So what do they do? They quickly call this emergency meeting. They bring all the leaders together and they say, What are we going to do with the ark? This is just not working. And so they come up with a plan. They don't want to lose it just yet. It could be um, you know, useful in some way. So they send it off to another Philistine city, uh, to Gath. Same thing happens at Gath. You know, people are terrified. They're panicking. Uh, tumors are breaking out. People are dying. And so they palm it off to Ekron. You know, they're playing hot potato with the ark. And uh, when the people of Ekron realize that the ark is with them, they all go into meltdown. They're saying, no, 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 we don't want that thing. Get it away from here. And so they call this meeting and uh, they decide that they're going to get rid of the ark. They're going to actually send it back to Israel. Back to where it was because verse 11 says there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. So they want to get rid of the ark. Now, in some ways, that makes sense because they can see all of the carnage that it's causing. So it makes sense to want to get rid of it. And yet, at the same time, that doesn't make sense because you think about it, here they are witnessing God's power. They're realizing that this is the true and the living God. That all of those other things are just idols. Here is the true and living God. Realizing it, They're seeing his power on display. 
you would think that they would chuck out all their idols, that they would bow down in worship before the Lord, that they would do everything they can to get right with God, and yet they don't. They want to get rid of him. They treat the ark, it's almost like they treat it like it's an unexploded bomb that it could detonate at any minute. They don't want to have anything to do with it. It kind of reminds you of that time when um, Jesus healed a, a demonic man who had a whole legion of demons in him. And when the people of that town saw the power of Jesus to be able to do that, remember what they did? They told Jesus, can you go away? Leave us alone. Why do they do that? It's because the human heart does not want to be changed. People don't want their lives changed. They don't want to be interrupted by God. And uh, that's what we see with the Philistines. You know, they, they can see who the true and living God is. But they don't want their lives altered. They would rather push him away. And that's something that the Bible says everyone does. Everyone does that with God unless God intervenes in a saving way. Uh, Romans 1 says that the truth about God is plain for everyone to see. You know, God's power, his divine nature has been revealed in the things that he has made. And so all around us, we constantly have displayed the greatness of God. What do people do with that? Romans 1 says we suppress that truth. We suppress it because, and here's Romans 1 goes on to say, it's because we would rather have idols. We would rather worship and serve things created rather than the true and living God uh, because idols are, well, idols are more manageable. Um, idols can be contained. Uh, idols can be uh, controlled. Uh, you feel like you're in control of your life, uh, which ends up not working. But you can't do that with God. See, when it comes to God, you can't have him on your terms. You can't have God set up there beside Dagon. Okay? You can't be in second place. Uh, if, if you're going to accept who God is, you have to accept everything about him. He has to be Lord of your life. And the Philistines, uh, they tried to have God on their terms, but the weight of God's glory came crashing down on them. It terrified them. Uh, verse 12 says uh, that the men who did not die were struck with tumours. So that implies that people did die. Uh, verse 6, 7, 9 and 11 connects all of that directly to God's hand. That God's hand was heavy, God caused all this death and tumours and terror and panic, his heavy hand. And see, that's the sort of thing that people say, you know, that's what, that's what I don't like about the God of the Bible. He seems very angry. He seems very harsh. Uh, see, no one wants a God whose who's weight now, the weight of his glory is so heavy that it, it literally crushes those who resist him. No one wants that. I mean, even for us, it's, it's much easier to um, talk about you know, the, the love of God or God's fatherly care or his kindness. You know, it's much easier to hear. It's much easier to cope with. 
But we cannot ignore the fact that, yes, God is loving and kind, but he's also holy and just. And he's a God who hates wickedness. Psalm 5 says, uh, With you the wicked cannot dwell. It talks about God judging all idolatry. It's offensive to him. For those who reject God, his presence is a terrifying presence. Okay, that's just a plain fact of the Bible. God's presence is terrifying for those who reject him. And that terror and the panic that the Philistines experienced on that day, really that's just a snapshot of the terror and the panic that will come upon all who reject God on the last day, the day of judgment. Do you know, Revelation chapter 6 pictures unbelievers calling on the mountains to crush them rather than face the weight of the wrath of the Lamb. It's a terrifying picture. And the reason this is in the Bible is because God is holy. Because this is who He is. He's the holy God who hates sin, who judges idolatry. And the reason it's in the Bible is not only to tell us who God is, but it's to tell us how serious our sin is. It's to tell us how offensive idolatry is to God. You know, we might think it's a very small matter when money is the drive of our life. It's not a small matter to God, though. And we can apply that to any idol. It's not a small matter to God. He hates it. And this is, it's here, this passage is here, to cause us to do something drastic about our idolatry. That we would turn from it. That we would hate it. That we would throw it out. That we would turn back to the Lord. Because now is the day for reconciling with God. Now is the day for getting right. Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that was written to people in the church who think they're okay when they're not. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, this is the weight of God's glory. And don't be like those Philistines who knew the truth and yet did everything they could to push God away. Don't be like that. Okay, so we see the fact of God's supremacy. We see the weight of God's glory. And the final thing we see here is the certainty of God's victory. The certainty of God's victory. Uh, Now, the passage, it begins with the Philistines capturing the ark. Uh, This looked like God was defeated. Um, But, of course, you cannot defeat God. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the passage, it ends with this very surprising statement right at the end, at the end of verse 12. It says, The cry of the city went up to heaven. That's a surprising statement because it's almost word for word straight out of the book of Exodus. Remember when um, God's people were slaves in Egypt and the, you know, the slavery just kept getting worse. Uh, they kept having more and more burden put on them. And they got to the point where they were just in such despair that it says the cry went up to heaven. And what did that mean? It meant that they were completely helpless. So helpless that there was nothing that they could do 
and they just cried. And now we see that's what the Philistines are doing. They're completely helpless before the one true God. And, you know, while the Philistines are doing that, while the Philistines are crying out in despair, what were Israel doing back at home? Do you remember? (laughs) They were all crying in despair as well, but for very different reasons. They were crying in despair because they thought that God had abandoned them, that God was defeated, that it was all over, that the Philistines had won. How wrong they were. (laughs) Uh, Because here, you know, as the Philistines are passing the ark off from one city to the next, you know what's really going on? God is on this military campaign. He's going from one city to the next, single-handedly defeating all of his enemies. And all that time, Israel were thinking all was lost. (laughs) Boy, they had it wrong. Uh, It turns out that what looked like the defeat of God was actually his greatest victory. And that's how it is with God. Whenever it looks like God has failed, whenever it looks like he's on the losing side, whenever it looks like he's done for, That's always the point where God is doing something so amazing that we could just never come up with it. Uh, That he's conquering, that he's he's having a victory. And and that's helpful for us because so often it appears like those who oppose God are the ones with all the power. Now think about it today, uh, you know, the people who control the media and, and every part of social life, it seems like Uh, They're the ones with all the power and they're the ones who are opposing God, uh, opposing the faith, uh, making Christians look foolish. And it it kind of looks to us like defying God actually works. But appearances are never what they seem. And uh, whenever it looks like God is defeated, that always ends up being his greatest triumph. And do you know the best example of that? is, of course, the cross of Jesus. Because in the cross of Jesus, this is God himself come down in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And, you know, so many gathered against the Son of God. So many uh, plotted against him. And they had him arrested. And they mocked him and they punched him. And they uh, beat him up. They arrested him. And they took his hands those hands that performed all of those miracles, they took those hands and they nailed them down to the cross. Then they lifted him up and everyone taunted him saying, come on, if you're really that powerful, prove it by coming down. And Jesus stayed there. And he died. And he was buried. And it looked like Jesus had lost. It looked like that was the end of him. Everyone went home thinking, well, that's, that's it for him. But what they couldn't see was on the cross, Jesus was in complete control. That Jesus was winning the battle, a far bigger battle than anyone could ever imagine. Uh, in fact, what Jesus was doing on the cross, he was actually doing something about God's heavy hand that should come down on all of us. Uh, because there is a sense in which all of us have defied God All of us have treated God like the Philistines. And therefore, all of us deserve to have the heavy hand of God come down upon us in judgment. 
Right? We're all guilty of idolatry, like the Philistines. And so we all deserve to have God's heavy hand against us. But on the cross, what happened? The heavy hand of God came down on Jesus. The Father's heavy hand came down on His own Son. The wrath of God on His own Son punished Jesus in the place of sinners. And so right now, if you, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are trusting in Jesus, God's heavy hand is no longer against you. In fact, if you're trusting in Jesus, do you know God's hand actually becomes the very, uh, the very definition of our eternal security? Because Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. He said, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, the comfort. God's hand to us is no longer a threat. If we're in Christ, God's hand is our very security, eternal security. You're safe forever. And see, the proof of that is that Jesus rose again. And when Jesus rose again, that proved that he has defeated an enemy that was far bigger than Dagon or far bigger than the Philistines. He's defeated death itself. And so for all who are in him, death has been defeated. He's won the victory. Satan has been defeated. Sin has been conquered for all who trust in him. See, when God looks like he's failed, when he looks like he's defeated, that's when he's winning the biggest victory of them all. And so we started the sermon by asking, has God been defeated? Are his glory days over? Are we on the wrong side of history for believing in him? And the answer from 1 Samuel 5 is clearly no. 1 Samuel 5 tells us that God can take care of himself, that we don't have to worry about his existence. We don't have to worry if his cause is under attack or if he looks like he's defeated. We don't have to worry because he can take care of himself. He's not like Dagon who needs his followers to come along and put him back up on his stand. Okay? He's the God of the universe. And he, he tells us he will build his church. And see, for us, what do we need? We need the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord drives out all other fears. And we don't know what God's going to be doing in Australia. We don't know what God's up to over the next 10, 20, 30 years. You know, what will it be like for Christians in Australia? Uh, what, what will it be like for our children or our grandchildren? What, what will it be like for them to live in this land as Christians, will it be harder? It certainly would seem that case. But we don't have to worry because we know God is still in control. And when it looks like he's defeated, that's when he's doing his greatest work. The cross is our guarantee. The resurrection is our guarantee. And that is the certainty of God's victory. So trust in him. Don't despair. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so uh, encouraged by this passage where we can see your power on display. Um, but we're also humbled, Father, because we realise that the things that we do put our trust in, uh, those things that are so vulnerable to um, being lost or broken, uh, we realise that yeah, you've, you've exposed them 
And um, we pray, Lord, that you would expose them in our hearts, that we would see all of the, the, the things that we trust in that are powerless and that we would turn from trusting in them to trusting in you alone. Father, we pray for uh, your people in this land. Uh, we pray for us all, Lord, as, as we can sometimes feel that sense of despair, that it's, it's hard, uh, that it looks like things are going from bad to worse. Um, but we know that appearances are never as they seem. And that with, with you, uh, all things are possible. And Lord, we look to you as the God who will triumph over evil. Uh, we know that you have a day set where that will happen. Uh, help us to be faithful to you in the meantime. Help us to be courageous, to be bold, uh, to stand for you, knowing that, that you are the, the king overall. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.